How's everybody? Good? Cool. Um, I have been asked this morning to read uh, the scripture for Pastor Ed, so if you could turn with me to Daniel 3. Okay. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. <clears throat> Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, pardon, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I had made, very good. But if you do not worship it, I will have you thrown immediately into a blazing furnace." then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we were thrown into the blazing furnace, the god we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from, it, your, ma and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, 
Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. <clears throat> then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They are trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego in their province of Babylon. The word of our Lord. I love, I love the way Reese says Abic Eagle. That's beautiful, Reese. I love it. <clears throat> um, I wanted to find a way to tie up our series in Genesis, um, particularly as it relates to theological anthropology or our doctrine of humanity. And this text from Daniel chapter 3 enables me to do that, as I think you will see as we proceed. In his recent book entitled The Most Human Human, author Brian Christian observes, along with the Harvard psychologist Daniel Gilbert, that every psychologist, not to mention every human being, must at some point in his or her career write a version of the sentence. Specifically, the sentence reads like this. The human being is the only animal that blank. How do we fill in this sentence? The French philosopher René Descartes filled in the sentence this way. The human being is the only animal that thinks. I think, therefore I am. So to be truly and authentically human for René Descartes, to be distinctively human, is to be a rational animal. The psychologist Daniel Gilbert goes beyond Descartes 
and fills in the sentence with a qualifier. He says, the human being is the only animal that thinks about the future. So to be human for Gilbert is to be a forward-looking animal. We humans, he says, are the only animals with the unique capacity to worry about what's going to happen to us tomorrow. The spiritual theologian and recovering alcoholic Brennan Manning, the now late Brennan Manning, went beyond both Descartes and Gilbert, quipping, Who am I? Aristotle said, I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. To be human for Manning is to be something of a walking and talking paradox. It is, at present anyways, to be a glorious creature with an incredible capacity for self-destruction. Several people online whom I surveyed seem to think that to be distinctively human is to be uniquely capable of love. The sentence then is this. The human being is the only animal that really, truly loves. But those of us with dogs in our house, of course, will want to contest with this immediately when we receive unconditional love from them, it seems, all the time. But beloved, how do we fill in this sentence? The sentence that seeks to get at the problem of what it means to be uniquely, distinctively human as opposed to the other animals in the creation. How does Scripture bid us fill in this question? Before getting into that, let me clearly underline why I think this question is so critically important, important for every human being on the planet, but especially important for those of us who are Christians and those of us who are part of Christ's church. We whom the New Testament says, note well, are God's new humanity in the world. Why is this important? It's this. The way we view ourselves and the meaning of our humanity will not only determine our value and our sense of self-worth, it will also determine what we perceive to be the goal of our lives. And on a larger scale, the goal of our existence together as Christ Church. You see, because if to be truly human is, at the end of the day, to be rational, then ultimately, I will have value if I'm smart. The goal of my life will be to go to school and learn to be as rational as possible because I know that the most human human is the rational one. The church then, which knows itself to be God's true humanity in the world, will be turned into a palace of the mind, thinking that the supreme goal of its existence is to give people useful, reasonable information about God. On the other hand, if to be truly human is to be the only creature that worries about the future, then my value will become tied to how successfully um, I am at worrying about the future, how successful I am at worrying about the future. You know, guaranteeing for myself and my loved ones a good future. The church then will be turned into a palace of the psyche where we seek to do our best to help people recover from their anxieties about the future. Our most important message will be about going to heaven when we die. If to be truly human, once again, is to be a paradox, to be an uncomfortable mixture of light and dark, good and evil, sinner and saint, that is to say, if this condition actually defines us, what God always intended for us, rather than simply describes us, which I think is what Manning was on about, but if this condition defines us, then our value will become wrapped up with how well we can embrace this truly uncomfortable truth about ourselves. Our position as individuals in the church will become 
something like the writer C. Joy Bell, who says this, quote, I feel like God expects me to be human. I feel like God likes me just the way I am, broken and empty and bruised. I feel like God doesn't look at me and wish that I were something else because he likes me just this way. I feel like God doesn't want me to close my eyes and pray for him to make me holy or for him to make me pure because he made me human. To be broken, to be sinful, is at the heart of what it means to be human for Joybell. Friends, it's incredibly important. And maybe today more than ever. What does it mean to be human? How do we fill in the senses? Crises loom on every side when we get it wrong or even when we get it only partially right. As the author of the book, The Most Human Human, I mentioned Brian Christian discovered in a most fascinating way. He was invited to be part of the Turing test so as to win what is called the Loebner Prize. The Turing test is set up like this. There is a judge who is put in the room in a room behind a computer screen. He has a dialogue for five minutes, either with a human being, an actual human being, or with a computer that is simulating itself as a human being. After five minutes of a discussion, he needs to make a judgment about whether the one he was dialoguing with was a human, which one was the human, in other words, of the two that he had to decide between. A crisis came for Brian Christian when he realized that in the year before he was to engage in the Turing test, the computer lost by one single vote. The computer, Christian realized, is almost currently as rational as the human being. Thus, if to be human is to be rational, then in a few years from now, the most human human is actually not going to be a human at all. It's going to be a computer. And where will that leave us? Well, it will leave us exactly and precisely where the hard determinist psychiatrist D.F. Skinner said we are already. It will leave us beyond freedom and dignity. And so, beloved, the quest question must be asked, and with, particularly urgency, with particular urgency, what does it mean to be distinctively human? How do we fill in the sentence? And how, therefore, should we live as Jesus' church, his new humanity in the world? Well, thank God for Daniel chapter 3. Most of us are familiar with this story. And we're familiar with it on several levels. On one level, it's a political story. A story, about the a story which poignantly rehearses a king's unwavering demand and his subject's civil disobedience. On another level, it's a moral story. A story about the extraordinary courage and rock-solid fidelity of three brave Jews who had found something so precious in their lives that they were willing to die rather than let that precious thing go. On yet another level, it's a miracle story where God saves these three men along with their clothes from some seriously hot flames. And then on yet another level, this story can be read as a powerful allegory designed as much to teach us about our own lives as about theirs. Because we Christians can find ourselves in a whole lot of fiery furnaces today and probably should because of our fidelity to Jesus. But sisters and brothers, there's something else going on in this story as well. Something deeper. Something more fundamental. Something which in fact unites all of the other themes in this story under one 
unifying head. Namely, this story in Daniel chapter 3 is ultimately about the sentence. It's Scripture's answer to the sentence of what it means to be the most human human in the world, in a world full of chalk, chalk full of dehumanizing forces. Let's check this out. In Hebrew literature, there's a literary device called a late vort or a lead word. So you'll have a passage or a story, and as you read it in the original language, you'll see that this word occurs again and again and again. Sometimes this word can occur in a significant number of times, like we saw with Genesis a couple of weeks ago, in fact, right? When God says is used exactly 10 times. It's kind of a late vort. It's underlining the critical importance of the speech act in that text. But sometimes it'll happen seven times or 10 times or 12 times, underlining not just a theme of the text, but perhaps even the guiding theme of the text, which is to provide us with an interpretive framework for the whole thing. And why am I telling you this? Well, obviously I'm telling you this because there is a late board, a lead word in Daniel chapter 3. In fact, in verses 1 through 18, the, there is a word that occurs exactly 12 times. 12 times in verses 1 to 18, a word occurs again and again and again. Any guess what that word might be? It is the word akon in the Greek. It is the word selim in the Hebrew, which also occurs in Genesis chapter 1. It means image, or it means idol. Over and over again, Daniel chapter 3 mentions the image. And in context, we know that the image is, in the very first verse of the chapter 3, it is the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So, how do we read this text when we understand that the lead word is about the image or the idol? Well, the first thing we need to do is to make sure we rightly understand what an image was in the ancient Near Eastern world and how it was believed to have function in that time and place. Because, you know, we may think we know how an ancient Near Eastern person thought about an image, which was what? A carved piece of rock or a carved piece of wood in the image of a bull or some other animal, or like this 90-foot giant massive image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. But how did they think of the functioning of that piece of wood or piece of stone or 90-foot image? We can make two equal and opposite errors as we think about an image or an idol in the ancient East. On the one hand, we can think of it as more than it actually is. We can think that the ancient Near Eastern person thought that the image was the God without remainder. Everything that the God was was right there in the image on earth. That would be one error to make. They didn't think about an image or idol in that way. On the other hand, we might think that an image or idol to them was just representative. The God was not actually present in the image. It was just a figurine that was a symbol in some way, not a real presence, but a symbol to a God that lived in heaven. The divide between heaven and earth and the idol just represented what was in heaven, but didn't make it present, didn't represent it. Well, scholars have been digging into an understanding of how people thought about images in that time. And how they thought about it was that the God would actually fill this object with his very presence, with his 
spirit so that the idol or the image became the real presence of the God on earth. The implication being, if you wanted to go and see your God in the earthly sphere, you would go to his idol or image. If you wanted to hear a word from your God in the earthly sphere, you would go to his idol or image because it was there that he was going to reveal himself to the world. It was through that icon, that image, that idol, that he would reveal his desires for the world. If you wanted to experience the power of the God for healing or for some other political purposes, you would go to the idol or image because it was through that avatar of his presence that he would unleash his great power for your benefit in the world. Armed with this knowledge, what then do we see when we get back to our text? Let's look and see what happens. Look at our text. Nebuchadnezzar sets up the image of Babylon's God on a plane and summons all the important people in his country to come and worship it. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a physical structure and calls his people to humbly acknowledge that it is in this place, 90-foot statue, in this image where the Babylonian God has chosen to dwell among men, unleash his power, and make himself known to the world in this towering, golden, shimmering statue. But as we know, when the mighty engine of worship starts with the whole musical ensemble blasting at full horn, creating an atmosphere of hype and glory, and you may have noticed the repetition of Daniel in this, the flute, the lyre, the this, the that, these three brave Jews refuse to be swayed and bow down to this image. They end up standing there instead, tall and upright, like three cream-colored tulips in a baseball field of gray pebbles. And even when Nebuchadnezzar responds graciously, giving this trio of stiff-necked, turban-topped Jews a second chance to make a first impression, they slap his grace right in the kisser, unleashing the hurricane force of his fury. The text literally says in verse 19 that the likeness or expression on Nebuchadnezzar's face changed. Then he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter and commands some of the strongest soldiers to come and bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and hurl them into the inferno. It is a theatrical show of power, if ever there was one. Nebuchadnezzar flexes all his muscles with tan spray and baby oil all over them. And the message to those watching could not be clearer. Be afraid, people of Babylon. Don't you dare challenge the authority of this kingdom or our declaration of where the presence and power of God or the gods for your good is located in this world because they reside right here in this towering, shimmering image of gold. So bow. But what happens next? Well, our usual answer is to say that God miraculously saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames, which is, of course, absolutely correct. God does. But I'm convinced that there is an even more correct way to put this, and it's like this. Within context, I believe that we are to see that it is precisely by saving these three exemplary Jews out of the furnace that the one and only God moves to prove his image. Where his power and where his presence and where his glory is located on earth as it is located on heaven above. 
Where is the access point between heaven and earth? Behold, it's about to be revealed in God saving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just look at this. Twelve times in verses 1 through 18, we're told about the image. Twelve times it's asserted that Nebuchadnezzar, by Nebuchadnezzar, that the place of the God's power and presence and revelation in the world is in that gorgeous 90-foot statue. And when the heat gets turned up and Nebuchadnezzar's burly soldiers appear on the scene, it really does look like the true locus of power in the world is located in Nebuchadnezzar's camp behind his image. But then what? Well, as Nebuchadnezzar's idol-worshipping soldiers are themselves burnt to a crisp, things begin to look a little different. Indeed, notice, despite all the repetition in verses 1 through 18 of our text, the word image doesn't occur again, not a single time in verses 19 and following. And why not? Well, it would seem it's because Daniel wants us to have an aha moment. He wants us to come to a realization for ourselves. He wants us to connect the dots as our focus is tuned, zoomed in on these three brave Jews who even at the point of death are willing to be faithful to their God. Consider, what was that furnace doing there? You ever wondered about that? Did Nebuchadnezzar set it up just in case someone was going to get belligerent? You know, maybe he was a bit of a pyromaniac and liked to burn unruly citizens up dramatically like Nero used to do. Of course not. That fiery furnace was there because it had just been used in the construction of Nebuchadnezzar's 90-foot statue. All the gold needed to be melted somewhere, and it was melted right there in that fiery furnace. So here's the kicker then. Nebuchadnezzar's image is made of gold, one of the strongest metals at that time. It took the whole fiery furnace, burning it who knows what degrees Calvin to melt it down. But now, when a couple of soft-skinned, vegetable-eating, Bible-reading, turban-top Jews are tossed in, it can't even toast up their clothes. What's going on? Well, what's going on, sisters and brothers, is that God is proving His image. The same God that showed up to Moses in a burning bush that, note well, did not burn up is saying in no uncertain terms that although it doesn't look like it, the material that these three redeemed human beings are ultimately made of is more resilient than gold. And they are because they are God's image. The true God's image. And that means that underneath all of that soft flesh, in and behind that fragile jar of clay, is actually cloistered the very power and presence and glory of the indestructible God. No wonder they can't get burned. That's certainly at least part of the reason, by the way, why we're told about that mysterious one like the son of the gods who's dancing in the furnace with them. Why is he there? Well, because it attests to the point that God is making. The place where heaven and earth meet, folks, the place where the divine company dances in and among men on earth below is in his redeemed image bearers his people restored in the image of adam before his fall remember adam taken up like clay in god the craftsman's hands and just as the craftsmen of idols in the ancient Near east would do blown with the spirit of god to make him alive ancient craftsmen used to blow into their idols symbolizing that now the presence of the God 
was animating that figurine, the very presence and power of God. And Genesis 2 is working with those stories and doing something. It's actually in the human being that the power and the presence and the glory of God is going to be present on earth. Not in a figurine. Not in a 90-foot image like we see with Nebuchadnezzar. So brothers and sisters in Christ, Daniel 3, I am suggesting to you, provides us with a powerful picture of God's answer to the sentence. Insofar as Daniel is concerned, In a world of dehumanizing forces, God's people must remember this central truth. The truth that the human being is the only animal that has been elected, chosen to be the idol or the image of God in the world. The human being is the only animal that has been uniquely selected in a special way to represent God's presence, to reveal God, and indeed to signal the glory of God on earth as in heaven above. And we must see this and let it go deep. Let me drill down. To be distinctively human is not at bottom to be a rational animal, even though to be rational is a good thing for a human being to be. To be distinctively human is not to be a forward-looking animal, although looking forward is certainly a very good thing for a human being to do. To be distinctively human is not to cozy up to our sin. Although admitting the sin that is cozied up to us is a very liberating thing for a human being to do. To be distinctively human is not even, despite what we might initially think, to be capable of love, even though to be loving is an imperative thing for a human being to be. No, sisters and brothers, to be distinctively human is to be distinctively chosen as the image and idol of God in this world, which, as we've seen, means to be the place where the transcendent and heavenly God has taken up residence by His Spirit and therefore is making Himself visible in the invisible realm, or in the earthly realm, making Himself and His power known. And it's telling, isn't it, in our story, when is it that Nebuchadnezzar comes to know the true God of this universe? It's just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are dancing in that furnace and come out. And he proclaims his faith then in the most high God. He comes to know it through the witness of human beings. And note well, human beings who are willing to suffer for their faith. The most human human, we must conclude, the most human human will be the human being who does this perfectly. Now here's where the rubber hits the road for us this morning. According to the New Testament, Jesus Christ was the image of God par excellence. The most human human this world has ever seen since Adam. And then secondly, the New Testament also says that we are in Christ. We participate in Jesus' own life, which means we are God's new humanity in the world. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. On the first day of the week, on Resurrection Sunday and John's Gospel, John says at the dawn, Jesus says at the dawn of a new creation, he says to his disciples, what? Peace be with you. And then he breathes on them the Holy Spirit, marking them out as his image, his idol in the world, those who are filled with his real presence. You see, to be a human being is a sacramental reality. It's to be the real presence of God in the world. 
And so the point for us, I think, is as God's new humanity in the world, what is our task in this world? Well, our task is to do all that we can to represent this God, to remember that we are, to showcase for the world what the presence of God looks like now, even as animated in human flesh. To take up the vocation of Jesus, who was God of very God in human flesh, and to take this up as those who have been chosen to be God's idol and image, and showcase to the world what that looks like and what that feels like. To say to the world, you know what we can say as a church to the world? We can say, hey, if you want to know what the true God of this universe looks like, then come and hang out with us for a while. If you want to hear a word from the true God of this universe, then come hang out with us for a while. Because God is speaking in and through us by his spirit. If you want to experience the power, the healing power of God in this world, most of all for your soul, then come and hang out with us for a while. Because the power and presence of God is operating in the world and being unleashed through God's new humanity. Friends, I was going to have a video at this point in the message, but apparently it's not working. I was going to show you a video of um, a little boy who's set out in the street in the wintertime without a jacket. He's just wearing a t-shirt and he's shivering and he's cold. And People walk along and initially in this video nobody helps this boy. But by the end of the video they show you frame after frame after frame of um, people wrapping their jackets around this little boy to keep him warm. What does it look like to be the presence of God and to reveal God? Well, the first thing that it looks like for those of us who would truly seek to be image bearers of God is the care of the fellow image bearers of God. It is love of God above all, but then love of other people as we would love ourselves. And to do this supremely then as we see in Christ by offering our lives so that others might live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, as we are put into crucibles, as we are put into fiery furnaces in our own lives, we pray that you would, you would test our metal and that we would be revealed, Lord, to, to exhibit your presence, to share it with the world, and that people may, in witnessing the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we interact, they may say, surely, there is a God, and he is being revealed in and through these people. Lord, we pray for your church. We ask that you would help us to be what you have called us to be, that you would be glorified and revealed in our midst. Thank you for this high calling. Fill us indeed with your spirit so that we may do it. Thank you, Lord, that you forgive us when we don't do it perfectly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.